0: Hey, thanks for joining us here. This lesson is uh, 2 Samuel. I want to begin this week where we were last week, and, and that is, uh, we're talking about 2 Samuel, and, and remember, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, and even uh, uh, the, the books prior to that, uh, Judges and Ruth, they're really these histories, and and especially 1 Samuel through 2 Kings, they're really the, actually the same book. So one of the things that we need to kind of grapple with in terms of the genre and and, and how to make sense of what we're encountering in these parts of scripture is that the, these are biblical histories, and uh, and I know we've all read a history before, we've all uh, encountered this in school, even from uh, from grade school on. But I want to talk about how we read history because uh, not not because uh, we don't know how to read a history and we don't know what history is but because and this is especially the case with biblical history the way that we read history and understand what's happening has been shaped by our education and that education for most of us has involved a lot of secular elements and and those elements will keep us to a certain extent from understanding what's actually going on in these scriptural texts so just like uh, last week with first samuel i want to talk about how we read history, and what difference that makes the way that we read these uh, histories, what difference that makes in what we come away with as Christians from these scriptures. And I want to begin here in a kind of maybe an odd place, because I want to begin with fairy tales. And I begin with fairy tales not because these this portion of the Bible is somehow not true, and it's make-believe. I want to begin here because actually we can learn something from fairy tales about history, because fairy tales are allowed to do something that our contemporary history writers usually are not allowed to do. Remember, we live in a secular age, and in our secular age, it's not okay for uh, a professional historian to reference God as the ultimate author of history, as the prime mover and shaker in ordinary everyday life. And we don't allow that because we have created this dome over our lives that prevents the light of God and the transcendence within ordinary life to be recognized as such. Instead, we shield life uh, that we share uh, in common with everybody else, our public lives, as well, frankly, our personal lives and the way we understand what's happening to us in our everyday life. We really shield our lives from... The transcendent from the divine presence that is actually present within ordinary life and his, uh, fairy tales don't do that histories they have to do that because we won't let them do it otherwise but fairy tales don't do that fairy tales instead teach us how we might understand history in a different way i'm going to call that way the eyes of faith what fairy tales do is they give us examples of how there can be transcendence. And remember transcendence is this big word that really just means the divine presence. And that presence is in Ordinary life—it is infused throughout it. We we know this and believe this as Christians, and we can, you know, write creeds and memorize catechisms. That yes, God is present and active uh, to this day. He's not dead. He's alive, and it matters that He's out there doing stuff in the world. But in terms of our practical everyday lives, especially for me, I don't remember that. I don't think of that. I don't imagine life as infused with the presence of the divine creator god i don't imagine my workaday life as being infused with the spirit of god i don't think that way and we don't want to uh confuse this so we don't allow historians typically uh to write this way and they don't and and especially uh Uh, Christians who are not of the faith, they have no inclination to do this. Their explanations for life and what happens in in life, in real life, they would say, happens for reasons due to politics, due to economics, due to social unrest, even uh, cultural factors, but not, certainly not, due to the divine presence in ordinary life. Fairy tales, because we automatically say they're not factually true, they're allowed they can get away with that they can talk about transcendent things occurring in ordinary life one of the things that that means is that fairy tales can do some things that histories can't and i mean histories in the sense of our contemporary histories like if i'm reading a a history about the second world war or even a biography of eisenhower fantasy and fairy tales can do things that those histories can't, and by far, I, in my estimation, at least, J.R.R. Tolkien is the greatest fantasy and, and and fairy tale writer in our current age. And uh, you know, he he wrote the Lord of the Rings trilogy and the Hobbit and the Silmarillion and all you know, great great works of literature that have been made into movies. If you haven't seen those movies, if you haven't read those books, boy, I recommend them. Of course, the books are better than the movies, as always. One of the things that the books have that the movies don't have much of is all of the singing. The poetry, the songs, they're, they're all through those books, and boy, they're a joy. Anyway, Tolkien said in this really cool essay that I've included on the website on fairies, it, he said that the purpose of fantasy is to help people see things not just as they appear to be, not just as they are on the surface, but as people were meant to see them. What does he mean by that he means that our tendency in our secular age to strip out any hidden or or not hidden uh, any meaning any transcendent meaning anything of the divine within life we strip that out we say that's not legitimate or that's controversial or that's something we don't talk about we don't take seriously fantasy helps us put that back in yes fantasy involves make-believe yes fairy tales involve things like magic and stuff that doesn't actually occur but they do go through a process that allows us to put meaningful transcendent things into life and those things are often really really important in a fairy tale so tolkien invents, invents this word right Of course, he's J.R.R. Tolkien. He can invent worlds. Of course, he can invent a word. He invents this word, eucatastrophe. Now, the scholars among us are going to pick this word apart and say, ah, good catastrophe. And you'd be right. I mean, both good and catastrophe are really important parts to this word. Might go a little bit further and say, "It's it's a happy ending that, against all odds, has emotional and moral fittingness. And it's not just a happy ending, uh, it, it involves a catastrophe, right? Something bad has to happen that, strangely, is also good. And what's really powerful about this is that Tolkien, and remember, Tolkien's a Christian, he says you catastrophe may be a far-off gleam or echo of Evangelium in the real world. That's the good news, that's the gospel breaking through that brass dome that we've constructed over our ordinary lives, this eucatastrophe brings the gospel to the real world. It's a vehicle for that to happen. And one of the really powerful aspects to this is that there are ethical and eschatological dimensions to the eucatastrophe concept. Ethical, it, it 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 reminds us. Remember, it's a it's a moral fittingness. It reminds us of what's good and right and proper in this world. And it's eschatological. It's end times. It's a foreshadowing of the ultimate ending. So, we we have. Many examples of you catastrophe um, in, in our culture, and there's lots of stories. I'm sure you can think of one. The ultimate story for a Christian that is a you catastrophe is the death on the cross of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I mean, it's a catastrophe. He dies, but it's also good because through his death, he saves us. So it is a you catastrophe, and interestingly, it's also temporally bound. And here I, I, I want to make it very clear that this that that this ultimate sacrifice of Christ on the cross is not temporary, and it's not a kind of uh, one among many thing. It's the ultimate sacrifice, and it is permanent, and it is world and life changing. When I say U catastrophe here, uh, temporarily bound and not permanent, and that it has eschatological implications, I'm getting at the sense that these U catastrophes in literature and in, in 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 art and movies, these are foreshadowing the ultimate ending, the ultimate U catastrophe. And I'm saying that the death on the cross is the ultimate U catastrophe. And what I'm saying it's temporarily bound. What I'm what I'm getting at is that in in terms of God's grand cosmic story for this world and, and life as we know it, we are in that in-between time between Christ's sacrifice and death and resurrection and the ultimate end of time when all things are finally and fully restored to him. So in this in-between time that we exist in, we can say that the full work of the kingdom, the full work of the cross has yet to be completed. It may be completed in, um, in, in one sense, in, in that we are saved once and for all, but it's not completed in the grand cosmic story sense. There's still stuff to happen in this in-between age and it's really easy to find these examples of you catastrophe in our culture in the bible so let's uh remember last week and and we talked a lot about it's a wonderful life the great film frank capra and the lord of the rings has these the bible also has these let's think about the one that i'm referencing here on the slide uh, saul and david okay in, in the story of saul and david saul has to die in order for david to become king and and if you remember there's all sorts of these stories in first samuel about david um being in a cave and and uh having all the opportunity in the world to kill saul and saying i will not go and put my hand against the lord's anointed i will not kill saul even though i could i won't do it why not? Because that's the Lord's anointed, and, and it's up to the Lord. And so David rightly uh, holds off on doing that. And the only way for David to become king, which would provide the resolution, the moral and emotional fittingness that we're after in this uh, in this history, the only way for that to happen is for Saul to die. And so when Saul dies, it's a catastrophe, and it results in David becoming king. These... You catastrophes are not the ultimate ending, but they are an important inflection point in the stories so that when they occur, what happens afterward is different and on a different trajectory than what was happening before. And in our personal testimonies, we often hear these kinds of stories. We say, boy, life before conversion was this way, and then I met my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and I am saved and life bends and there's an inflection point and we talk in terms of a testimony of life-changing experience a you catastrophe let's focus in on that movie that we've been talking about it's a wonderful life remember when this movie begins the real crisis here is that George says I wish that I'd never been born. And at that moment, he launches into this kind of fairy tale story, where the angels get involved, and he's given a chance to see what life is like if he had never been born. And it's, it that's in that sense, this movie is like a fairy tale, and that fairy tale piece is actually also his greatest fear. Right? We learn as he's observing life, uh, without himself in it, that. He is terrified and just heartbroken that the people that he who he loves don't know who he is. And that's the greatest tragedy for George. And he sees that and experiences that and it's awful. Well, at the end, at the end, what happens? What happens is there's a catastrophe. What happens is there's this bank examiner coming and his uncle loses the money that he's supposed to deposit. So there's the chance of jail. And it's just a huge financial mess that turns into a giant legal mess. And his life is about to end as he know it knows it. And it's just a terrible thing. But through that experience, he gets to see what all of the relationships with all of the loved ones, friends and families he's had in his life mean. He gets to see the power of those relationships. And so we love that movie. We love the ending. But it's important to recognize that this is not a finale ultimately. This is a temporary ending. George at the end maybe slightly better off than he was at the beginning. That's hard to really tell. I'm not really sure what the, you know, $25,000 loan from his friend really is. Is it a loan? Is it a gift? Is it what? It's wired money. Um, but certainly the the sort of villain of the story, this Potter character, he's actually richer and more powerful at the end than he was at the beginning. So it's not this ultimate ending, but it's a turn of events that is very happy, that occurs, the turn of events cur- occurs through a catastrophe. It's a Wonderful Life is a, is a beautiful film to show us that these sort of inflection points, the junctures in these uh, stories, really, really important. And they are often sad or catastrophes or bad thing happening types of events. It reminds us that these fairy tales are pointers. They're pointers to this ultimate grand cosmic story of gods. They don't actually have an ending that's final and ultimate. They progress. Now, um, it, it also isn't, uh, in in and this isn't really the job of fairy tales, it, it and and It's a Wonderful Life doesn't answer this either. It doesn't say why George should live. It doesn't answer his question that that is implicit in his uh, beginning statement, I wish that I'd never been born. The movie doesn't tell us that George should live. It doesn't tell us why he should live. It shows us what happens when he doesn't live. And what that does is that increases our awareness that life, existence, matters. It matters an awful lot. It matters to us, but as you see in, in It's a Wonderful Life, it also matters to all the people whom George has touched, all of the friends and family who've been affected by his life and his existence. So it's a fairy tale movie because it heightens our awareness of the transcendence, of the enchantment of life, of the specialness of ordinary, regular life. Life And it's important to highlight that, because this is a film about a person who is so ordinary, he is troubled by the ordinariness of his life. The whole film is about his his life of wanting to break free and go to exotic locations and do fantastic things and great deeds and fabulous accomplishments. And his life turns out to be ordinary in a, in a way that we can probably relate to, but through the use of fairy tale, through the you catastrophe, we also get to see that it is that ordinariness that we take for granted that contains so much richness and an enchantment that we so often in our contemporary age ignore. So fairy tales help us to recover this enchantment with life. In a certain sense, there are really t- stories about the miracle of the ordinary. And psychologists like uh, David Myers talk about this uh, as happiness isn't getting what we want. It's, it's wanting what we have. It's really a way of changing our perspective on what life is all about. So let's turn now to the Bible and talk about um, you know, how we can understand what's happening in first and Second Samuel in terms of fairy tales, in terms of you catastrophe. We'll do this through uh, a couple of really kind of weird passages in 1 Samuel chapter 9. Uh, Reading again from the ESV, as ever, starting with verse 8. And there was war again, and David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow so that they fled before him. Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand, and David was playing the lyre, and Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear. But he eluded Saul so that he struck the spear into the wall, and David fled and escaped that night. Alright, then we'll read the second passage starting at verse twenty. Then Saul sent messengers to take David, and when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying, and Samuel standing as head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. When it was told Saul, he sent other messengers, and they also prophesied. And Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they also prophesied. Then he himself went to Ramah, and came to the great wall that is in Seku, and he asked, where are Samuel and David? And one said, Behold, they are at Nioth and Ramah. And he went there to Nioth and Ramah. And the Spirit of God came upon him also. And as he went, he prophesied until he came to Nioth and Ramah. And he too stripped off his clothes. And he too prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, Is Saul also among the prophets?" okay so those past, that's kind of weird i want especially want to go back to verse 9 in the esv it says it's a harmful spirit in my uh, new american standard uh version in verse 9 it says now there was an evil spirit from the lord on saul that's kind of strange so does that mean that god sent an evil spirit well that's a, quite a question i think that one of the things that we should do right now is to understand what it is that we're actually talking about there's sort of two understandings of evil at work in the Old Testament and certainly here in Samuel. And uh, the this sort of overall understanding of evil, that it's a violation of shalom, is a sort of typical understanding of, of, of evil. And it doesn't really help if you don't really know what shalom means. So shalom is this really important term in the old testament it, it means the uh, an overall peace and relational community a harmony a, a well-being a, a flourishing within and and um, abounding uh, among community members that really includes not just people but the entirety of creation basically it's the way things ought to be it's the way things were in the garden it's the way things will be one day there's just no space within shalom for evil so this sort of first definition of evil, uh, evil sub one, if you will, is is something bad for people uh, individually. It's sort of like getting sick, uh, or you you've lost your camel or something. That's something that's evil to you, and it may in fact turn out, as in the case of a you catastrophe, to be good for you or good for uh, shalom in the in the community in the long run. Uh, but for right now, you don't really like it. That's, that's sort of that first sense. it's sort of bad for you right now. This second more more universal more abstract sense of evil is just injustice against the creation itself. It's this is the stuff that's just wrong. This is the stuff that's just bad. This is the stuff where you would say this is evil. So let's let's look at this then God sent an evil spirit to Saul. Well what, what was Saul's sin after all? what what actually happened that that made God so upset with Saul? So let's look at these passages here. 1 Samuel chapter 13 and also in 15. Okay, chapter 13, starting with verse 6. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still in Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. He waited seven days, the appointed time by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, Bring the burnt offering here to me, and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, When I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you didn't come within the days appointed and the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Okay, so Saul doesn't wait. He offers the offering himself. Let's go to chapter 15, verses 1 through 3. uh, continuing on in verse 13, And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop! I will tell you what the lord said to me this night and he said to him speak and samuel said though you are little in your own eyes are you not the head of the tribes of israel the lord anointed you king over israel and the lord sent you on a mission and said go devote to destruction the sinners the amalekites and fight against them until they are consumed why then did you not obey the voice of the lord why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the lord Saul said to Samuel, "I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people of the but the people took the sheep, the spoil, and the oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal." And Samuel said, "Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold." To obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams, for rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. So what is Saul's sin? It's faithlessness. He rebelled by not trusting in the Lord. He didn't trust in the Lord when uh, when Samuel wasn't there, so he'd sacrificed himself. He didn't trust in the Lord and follow through with what he was commanded to do. He decided to keep the best for himself. And, you know, as is often the case, sin spirals out and out from us personally, and and certainly out from us at the time that we do it, and it just wreaks havoc on life. and And it's no different here. Uh, with Saul. It led to evil in his own life and the lives of his children. Going back to chapter 13, we can see that quite clearly, both in his life and, really, the life of his kids. So in chapter 13, verse 13, And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart." and the lord had com- has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the lord commanded you so when we when we think about saul's sin and we look at the evil that spirals out from it we see a whole bunch of different pieces to that evil one of those is that he's isolated from community he begins in community, right? So in the beginning of Samuel, he's the all the tribes are together to to find the king, and and they're all there, and everybody from Benjamin is supporting him, and and he's right in there, part of community. And how does he how does he die? How does he end? Well, he ends in in paranoia and and just isolated from everybody. After that point in which Samuel rebukes him, he never sees him again. This is the man, the prophet of God, who anointed him and who encouraged him. He never sees him again. And and Israel is is just totally engaged in civil war and just unbelievable uh, struggling. He even tries to kill his own son, Jonathan. He's totally isolated. Let's look at chapter 10, verses uh, 20 to 26. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot, and Saul the son of Kish was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired after, again of after the Lord, Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Then they ran and took him from there, and when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him? Whom the Lord has chosen, there is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king. He goes from there to paranoid isolation. Evil manifests itself. One of the ways it manifests itself is community isolation. Another way, and you can absolutely see this in Saul, is Saul hated himself. He loathed who he had become. And, and that insecurity that was always present within Saul turns to self-hatred, not at peace with himself really ever afterwards. And if you're not at peace with yourself, how can you be at peace with others? And that self-loathing eventually led to self-destruction that that evil spirit is really Saul's guilt ridden soul and the disobedience feeds the self-hatred, the self-hatred, feeds this sense of paranoia and isolation. He ends up driving everybody including his family away from himself. And and you know, as you've read all the time, Saul is contrasted with David. David is a man after the Lord's own heart. Well, what really does that mean? Does that mean that David always did the right thing and that everything David did we should do? No. That's a moralistic reading. That is not the case at all. David had many wives. Obviously, we are commanded not to have many wives. So it is not that David was perfect. It is not that David is a moral example. It is that David was a man after God's own heart. What does that mean? It means that he submitted to the sovereign will of the Lord. Remember, that's what Saul did not do. So let's look at some of these passages here in First and Second Samuel that talk about this. Okay, so the, the first passage here in chapter 17, this is the famous David and Goliath story who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. So here, David is saying, yes, I went against lions and bears. I can go against this Goliath character, but it's not because I'm some big tough guy. It's because the Lord worked through me. David trusted that the Lord would work through him throughout his life. David trusted and relied on the Lord's agency in his ordinary, everyday life. And that's a really important lesson for us to to, to understand. That's what David's sense of having God's heart meant. It meant that he was totally aware and fully filled with this notion that his ordinary life, whether he's out tending sheep or whether he's killing Goliath or whether he's in a cave watching Saul go to the bathroom, he's totally aware that God is in charge and that God has a plan and that God works through ordinary life to make his will occur in this world. So let's look at that Uh, cave scene here in chapter 24 when Saul returned starting at verse 1 from following the Philistines he was told behold David is in the wilderness of En-Gedi then Saul took three thousand chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats rocks and he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave and Saul went in to relieve himself Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave, and the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterwards David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my lord, the Lord's anointed. To put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed, so David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And, and it's amazing because here it is, David, this this guy who's really good at killing people decides, I can't kill Saul even though he's right here in my hands. This might seem to somebody else like a gift from God, but I can't go against the will of God he's a man after god's own heart he recognizes who's in charge in his final passage second samuel uh, chapter 16 is one of my favorite passages this is kind of one of these weird bizarre passages that just um is is real life I'm, I'm sure we've all walked this walk that david is walking and you're like come on man second samuel chapter 16. When David came to Bahurim, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gerah. And as he came, he cursed continually. And he threw stones at David, and at all the servants of King David, and all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. And Shimei said as he cursed, Get out, get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. Then Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take off his head. But the king said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah, if he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, Curse David? Who then shall say, Why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and to all his servants, Behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjaminite? Leave him alone and let him curse, for the Lord told him to it may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. So again, David has faith in the promises and the will of the Lord. That's why he is a man after David after, after God's own heart. David has total faith and imagines his life infused by the power and presence of the Lord. It's fitting that what led to David's kingship was a catastrophe. Those events in ordinary life and in these histories of catastrophe that God turns into something good show us his presence, the transcendence of our Lord in biblical history. So let's look at these passages and remember what is happening here in ordinary history as recorded in these scripture passages. Okay, so in in this first uh, Deuteronomy chapter 17, this lays out what a king should be. Chapter for, uh, 17 verse 14 of Deuteronomy, when you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose, one from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother, only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for, her, for himself excess of silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it in all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. That his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left so that he may continue long in his kingdom he and his children in israel so this in deuteronomy moses is laying out what a king should be now of course before we get to kings we go through this passage in joshua the very ending of joshua in chapter 24. and here it is in, in this covenant renewal after they've gone into canaan and they've taken the land and possessed their promised land that they've been seeking since they were slaves in egypt and joshua says you know of course you're not actually going to keep this law you're not actually going to follow through with what uh you're required to and the covenant will be broken and the people say no of course not we will do this joshua says no of course you won't and they say no but we actually we will do this so We now fast forward a little bit then to this passage in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 8. And this is uh, Samuel responding to the people saying, uh, hey, give us a king because everybody else has a king. In in, uh, chapter 8, verse 6, But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to excuse me, according to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods so that they are also doing to you. Now then obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel took all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks, and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. So you kind of see a repetition of what was happening at the end of Joshua there. And What's really interesting is that in between those two passages of Joshua and First Samuel, we have uh, Judges and Ruth, and I think it's really instructive to remember what's happening then in in these uh, 17 through 19 chapters of Judges. What's happening there is this incredibly awful story um, about this, this traveling Levite who has this concubine, and he's going in to he he leaves from Bethlehem and he's traveling into the the territory of the tribe of Benjamin, and he comes to this little town and nobody will show him hospitality. He's you know out in the place where people would be out and and there's the well and he's in this sort of the town square and nobody was going to help him out. Nobody's going to give him a room for the night. In comes this Ephraimite from the hill country. He's this uh, this old man and he says here come into my place and shelter for the night. So the Levite and the concubine come in now after leaving this guy out outside all day, now all the townspeople show up and they start banging on this Ephraimite's door saying, you know, send this Levite out that we can, um, you know, do tremendously awful things to him. And then, you know, he says, no, I can't. I'm, I'm showing hospitality to this man. So eventually what happens is, as you remember, the the Levite, you know, pushes his concubine out the door and they defile her all night long and she's near death or at death's door Uh, and in the morning i guess he decides i'm going to open up the door and see what's happening and there's his concubine dead on the doorstep he tosses her on the donkey and they ride back to his house and he decides that what he's going to do is to show everybody how awful the tribe of benjamin is and cut this so he cuts the concubine up in 12 pieces and sends it all around israel the rest of israel is so enraged by this that they go and nearly destroy the entirety of the tribe of benjamin they they almost annihilate the tribe of benjamin they they weaken the tribe of benjamin so much that it's always ever after called the smallest tribe so the question then is <clears throat> is, is this a you catastrophe what does this have to do with the rest of the story well what's really interesting remember then is that What's happening in Ruth right after those chapters? Ruth, where does that occur? Well, where 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 do Naomi where does Naomi and Ruth go? They go to Bethlehem. And what are the people in Bethlehem like? Why is it that the tragedy that begins Ruth? Why is that tragedy happy? And it's not just because the child That eventually becomes of this is in the lineage of of Jesus Christ. What happens is, through following the Torah law, all of that law that we read before about how you should treat your neighbor, remember the widow and the sojourner and the orphan, all of that stuff is being followed by these people in Bethlehem. So all of those gleaning laws and everything like that enable Ruth and Naomi, to survive and to have an opportunity to turn that catastrophe that begins the story with the sons dead and everybody's starving to death into a story about life. It's a resurrection type story in Ruth. And it's not a coincidence that these events occur in the same place. It's not a coincidence that the ending of Judges involves this tremendous catastrophe to the Levite's uh, concubine, and then this tremendous catastrophe to the entire tribe, almost, of Benjamin, and that what happens in Ruth? It occurs in Bethlehem, where the Levite began his journey. And what happens in these subsequent histories? Well, what do the characters do, and how do they identify themselves? And, and how do they re- identify their relationship with the Lord? Let's think about Saul and David in this regard. Remember, what tribe was Saul from? He's, from the, he's a Benjaminite. He's from the tribe of Benjamin. Where was David from again? That's right. David is from Bethlehem. So, these stories contain these details in, inside of them that maybe the first time we read them, we don't remember, we don't pick up on this. But one of the reasons why we as Christians think it's really important to spend our lives reading and rereading these scriptures is because we then start to pick up on the nuances and the subtleties, the richness of these stories as they begin to play out in our own lives and in our own imaginations. So yeah, the self-identity of Saul and David, as well as their tribal and geographic origins, really matter. And it's not an accident that these historians who wrote these stories remember them either. It's also no accident that these characters respond to God in very almost diametrically opposed ways, right? So does is there really any time in which Saul lets the hand of god work or is he always worried and anxious and taking matters into his own hands and frankly is there ever a time when david yes there is a times when david takes matters into his own hands and they end very badly but a lot of times david is responding to god by being faithful and obedient and it's also no surprise that the other people around them respond very differently to these leaders saul and david right What does Saul constantly promise and and throw out to people, you know, things like wealth and status and power? Who does David attract around him as he's, you know, hiding out in the caves? These are the losers of society. These are the down and outers. And they come, these are the 600 men, they come to David and they rally around him. His response to the, uh, The widow and the orphan and the sojourner, the the common refrain of who you should be thinking about and caring about from the Torah, from the law, that's who David is relating with. That's whose uh, charge um, David is is, is in care of. And Saul is almost the opposite, right? Saul is out to be mighty and a warrior and to uh, not relate to people, but to win for them and eventually to try to dominate them. And then it's also no surprise that this this perennial problem that the Israelites have, because when they initially conquered Canaan, they did not do as the Lord commanded and 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 get rid of all the Canaanites. So how do they relate to the Canaanite presence in Israel? Well, what did what did Saul do with the Amalekites, right? He he kept the best of their stuff. He kept the best livestock. And and David, on the other hand, is going out and just annihilating the Canaanites. He's following through on the will of the Lord. That leads us to end with the question of how this relates to us as Christians. Well, what we see in the story here of of Saul and David and, and all of their exploits is David having the heart of God, meaning David seeing the transcendence of God in ordinary life and submitting to that reality. And Saul, submitting to the reality of what his senses and his anxieties and his feelings and thoughts told him to do. That's usually, if you're like me anyway, how I operate in this world. I usually trust myself. I usually think of the world separate from the Lord. I usually only think about what's in front of my nose, just like Saul. David had a heart to imagine and perceive the world in terms of God's story, in terms of the Lord's reality the storytellers who wrote this this set of histories in 1 Samuel through 2 Kings were fantastic storytellers and they wove these details that i've mentioned about where they're from and what their tribal backgrounds are and how they related to these other people they put all that stuff in there not by accident not by coincidental happenstance on purpose because they're weaving together this beautiful story about the transcendent god coming down into our ordinary lives and making them mean something important mean something beautiful the question that i want to have us think about then is does this same lord the lord who anointed the king over Israel, who said David is a man after his own heart, does he continue to do that same thing with us, with the creation, with the whole grand cosmic story of life? Really, that's our own faith question. We're not unique and, and, and the first people to have ever asked that. Let's look at what Paul had to say about that. So Paul in Colossians 1, starting at verse 16, for by him, Or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. And then again, in in Romans chapter eight, I'll I'll start here with uh, verse eighteen. that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. The question, friends, is whether we actually believe— Not just intellectually, but believe in a deep, habitual, day-in, day-out sense that this same Lord Jesus, through whom all things were created and in whom all things will be restored, is actively at work in our lives to bring that about. It's often said that faith is a sense-making organ. It's a way of making sense of life in this world. So the question I put to you is, do we actually sense through faith the transcendence, the divinity piercing ordinary life right now in our ordinary everyday lives? Can we make sense of life in this faith-based way? And then does this moralistic way of reading scripture where we read the story of saul and david and say okay we'll do what david does because he's the hero how does that way of reading scripture that immature simplistic way of reading scripture how does that rob us of seeing life as infused through and through by transcendence by god at work in our everyday lives thank you